Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. Sometimes you just have to laugh to keep from crying. You ever had one of those weeks where you felt like there was this little cloud, this little black cloud just following you around, kind of like Charlie Brown or something? Everybody else is out in the sunshine, having a good time. And there's this little cloud following you around that lightning striking in the, that's, that's my week this past week. And I'm trying to keep a good attitude, but before we get into the heart of this episode, I just want to talk about this a little bit because I I think it, it relates. And if nothing else, it will tell you a little bit about how things work on my end of this uh, podcasting system. Years ago, I got my first Macintosh computer in 1985, and that's not long after the famous Super Bowl Super Bowl commercial when they introduced the Macintosh. It wasn't long after that that I got it. I had a little print shop and went to a printing trade show, and the Macintosh was the thing. It was going to replace all that old photo typesetting film and the iTech Quadratech and all that stuff. And you were going to be able to do desktop publishing. And, you know, I went in debt for about $10,000 and bought a Mac SE. No, I don't know if it was an SE. Might've been a Mac plus. I can't remember. Anyway, the old black and white Macintosh with a nine inch black and white screen. It had a 40 megabyte hard drive in it. I bought software, things like PageMaker, for any of you old Mac people, you'll remember that. And a laser printer, a 300 DPI laser printer. And the grand total, which I had on a lease deal, was just shy of $10,000. And it revolutionized our print shop. Before, if somebody came in and wanted to order a flyer, you know, like we're having a car wash, you know, well, you need to come back the next day because it was a big ordeal to set the type, paste it up, and have a proof ready to be looked at. With the Macintosh, I literally could say, uh, just have a seat, give me five minutes, and I could go in the back and do this thing, print on the laser printer, bring it out, and show it to them. They could approve it right then. I could send it over it, you know, well, not send it over. I could take it over, shoot a plate and have it on the press. Literally, they could sit there in the waiting area and in 20 minutes, walk out with their thousand flyers on Canary 20 pound bond. That computer changed everything in our print shop, but it was very expensive. That was my first one. I was sitting here the other day thinking, I think a rough count, I've probably had 14 or 15 Macintoshes over the years. One by one, they die. They either die or the March, what I call the version creep sets in where you want this new software. Oh, it won't run on your Mac. You need to increase the memory. You, you don't have enough. You're not up to the highest operating system. You need system I started in system six. 
Then, oh, you have to have System 9. And then out came System 10, Mac OS X. And, you know, it was 10.1, 10.2, 3, 3. And then they started giving them these goofy names like Panther and Lion and Mountain Lion. And they're all the way up to something called High Sierra today. But each time that version, new version would come out, suddenly things didn't work. And you got to pull out your wallet and spend more money. And that, I mentioned in a previous episode, that happened to me recently with Skype. All of a sudden, I try to launch Skype to do an interview that I had scheduled, and it won't work. you got to download the new version. So I download the new version. Well, guess what? It won't run on your computer. Well, why are you giving me the new version if it won't work? You know, can't you check? Anyway, the old Skype, which worked the day before, didn't work, so I had to go to Plan B. Well, after a while, you just get tired of all this going to Plan B all the time. And there's something... Well, before I get into the philosophy of it, let me tell you what happened just in the last week, week to 10 days. I used to record the podcast on a Zoom H2 digital recorder. I would run the microphone through my old Mackie mixer, never had a problem with it, and take the output and plug it into the H2, hit record, and... When I was finished, I would bring it over to the Mac and add the little intro and output it in the proper form that I need to put it up online so you can listen to it. But I use that little Zoom H2. So I get all set up one day. I flick the switch. Nothing. It doesn't come in. So I thought, well, I don't have it plugged in. Anyway, bottom line, the H2, dead. It's a doorstop. Now you can, well, it's good for nothing. It died. So I went back to my old Boss BR-8, which was a a home recording, like a home studio gizmo that our band recorded, Pony Express recorded an album on it. So did Cedar Hill. And I did albums for three other groups, you know, just trying to produce a CD so that you had a little prop, you know, a little something you could sell at your gigs or use to promote your band. We weren't trying to win a Grammy or anything, but this little this little device recorded on zip zip discs. I don't know if you know what a zip disc is, but a, a zip disc is a 100 megabyte, kind of about a quarter inch thick, non-floppy drive disc thing. And believe me, I go all the way back to the old 8 inch floppies. And then they became, I think, five and a quarter, then three and a half, and then came the 100 megabyte zip, and then came the 250 megabyte zip. Today, I mean, I can go down to Walmart and buy a thumb drive that I don't even know how many gigabytes it has on it. It's just crazy huge amounts of storage space. But that Boss BR8, I pull it out because I need to record. So I pull out the old Boss, and of course, the zip drive is dead. This was the beginning. This was the the leak in the dike. I pull out the boss. Every disc I put in, it says, this disc is no good. Kick it out. Put another one in. This disc is no good. And I begin to think, you know what? All these discs can't be bad. I have 200 of these discs of old songs that are, you know, mixes and all this stuff. I got massive quantities of these old discs. 
They can't all be bad. It's got to be the drive. So I remembered in my attic, I had an old G3 Macintosh that some guy gave me when they were going to throw it in the dumpster. And it was better than anything I had, so I, I got it. I used it for a long time. That's what I initially created. The first version of BradleyLaird.com was done on that old G3. I had stuck it in the attic. I pulled it out because it had a zip drive in it. So just took two minutes to open the case. They used to actually put doors on the side of your computer. You know, take, you didn't even have to have a screwdriver to open a Macintosh. A Windows computer, you had to have take out four Phillips head screws. But anyway, I just opened the thing up. There's the zip drive. They got a little latch. You unlatch it and unplug it and pull it right out. So I opened up the Boss BR8 recorder, and I swapped the zip drive. Plugged it in, turned on, stuck in all those bad disks. Every one of them was good. There was nothing wrong with the disk. It was the drive. So I had something to record on again. All right, we're good so far. Then I record an episode and I bring it in to my iMac, which is now about five or six years old, which apparently is like ancient history in the computer world. I begin to work on the usual editing of it. And I noticed that the screen is making kind of weird wiggy things where I'd move a window and I'd see like 10 copies of the window trailing behind it that didn't go away. Restart and everything's fine. Well, the next day it started doing the same thing. And then all of a sudden the right and left half of the screen just suddenly swapped. Very weird. Like everything that was on the left half is on the right and everything on the right was on the left. The mouse still worked. It's like, ooh, something bad is going on with this thing. Shut it down, restart, everything's cool again. I got freaked out. Because there's so much stuff on there that's required for me to be able to even access my own website, to be able to put up the podcast, it just the all the the videos that I have and ebooks and all this stuff. I need a computer. I, I wish I didn't. I swear to God, I wish I did not need a computer. But to do what I'm doing Today, in this global internet economy, I have to have the dumb thing. Well, I must have insulted the thing enough that it was deciding to get back at me. So, not even being willing to wait for Amazon to deliver me a hard drive that I can back this thing up on, I'm forced to go to Walmart in our town. So, Walmart had a 2 gigabyte no, I'm sorry, two terabyte external drive. And I'm looking at the package and it says USB 3.0. And I'm thinking, oh man, my Mac, six years old, has USB 2.0. Is this, I don't even know if this is going to work. I, so I didn't buy it. And then I went home, thought about it a while, and went back and bought the two terabyte 3.0 drive, brought it in plugged it up and made a complete backup. Didn't have any problems with the computer. I got a backup. The following day was the last day that computer ever ran. It's, it's like I got lucky. I dodged a bullet. At least I have a copy of the hard drive. That computer has not successfully started up since that day. 
So this week, I don't know if you follow me on Facebook or Twitter, but I hadn't been there. I don't have access at the moment. And I'm recording this right now, and my complete total access to the Internet is an iPod that my wife gave me for Christmas. My old iPod has a cracked screen and so on. Well, let me tell you about the iPod. I got the, I opened the iPod. I'm ecstatic. I've got this great new iPod. It's has Wi-Fi. I can get, get on the internet and I can listen to all my favorite bluegrass on it. And so I, this was when the computer was working. I walk in, I plug it into the computer. Oh, we're sorry. Your computer is not like up to date enough to work with this iPod. And I'm like, oh, great. So you mean I get an iPod for Christmas, but I got to buy a new computer to use it? Oh, man. Anyway, it just becomes comical after a while. And I'm sure you've been through things like this. But it's, if if you just use it to, like, check the NBA scores and see what the temperature is or something, maybe it doesn't affect you as much as it would me, where my, my livelihood is you know, exchanging digital files over the internet and try to teach some guy in Iowa how to play a banjo. It's, uh, you know, sort of crucial to what I'm doing. Anyway, the computer won't start, so I pull out an old, an old laptop that, uh, does, does boot up, but you can't go on the internet with it. Uh, apparently the browser is just incompatible and, but I'm sitting here recording this, and I'm looking at it, and I'm using Audacity, an ancient version of Audacity, and it's recording just beautifully. I don't know what I'm going to do with this when I get done. Um, and I suppose I'm only talking about this to, I will now make the connection to bluegrass. I feel like we are so gizmo and gadget-oriented, and there's such a, a short lifespan to these things that I think it's a smart investment of your self and your money into things that are proven to be of lasting value. I was sitting around here moaning and groaning about all this. And, you know, if I just had 2,500 bucks, I could solve this problem pretty quick. But I don't have that handy. And so I was moaning and groaning to my wife. I... I pity that woman, the thing she has to listen to. But I was thinking, you know that frying pan that I made breakfast in this morning? I got that frying pan from my mother when I was in Boy Scouts. And I was, I think, 11 or 12. She gifted it to me, and I think it was my grandmother's. And I have used that same black skillet for all those years, and I don't know how many years it was used before, and it has never failed me. Same goes for an old axe that I have. I have broken the handle a couple of times, but I've never destroyed the axe itself. It's just disturbing to me that so much of our modern lives are built on little gizmos and gadgets and crap that breaks, you know? Do you, do you, like me, just get sick of that at some point? 
But I think, you know, think about bluegrass, learning to play an instrument. You can have an instrument that is a hundred years old and it be perfectly usable. I dare say, I, I don't have a computer now that's working that's over 10 years old and it's in no way usable. So bluegrass is a form of neo-Luddism, I think, going all acoustic and, you know, dreaming of that 1923 Lloyd Lore mandolin that is still perfectly playable. I think there's some, some lessons to be learned in all this. And I wish, I wish I wasn't in this business sometimes because of the way I have to do it. You know, while the internet seems like the greatest thing ever, in many ways, it's it's just a real pain in the neck. <laughs> you know, it is for me this week. Anyway, I'm going to set all that aside now that I've philosophized for a while. I'm going to hit pause, go have a drink of water. Presuming the refrigerator water dispenser is working. It's probably not. Anyway, I'll be back in just a minute and we'll get on with this episode. Howdy folks, I'm back from the refrigerator, and it was in fact working. Now let's get to the heart of this episode. Go to a festival. I want to talk about bluegrass festivals and why you should go. It's feeling like springtime here, and I know spring is not far away. We're getting that warm spell, that tricky warm spell, in the middle of February where we have a week where temperatures actually will touch 80 degrees here in America's Georgia. And then we'll get slapped upside the head with a hard frost one last time, I'm sure. But spring is coming. And if you've been sitting around the house all winter, practicing and playing in isolation, now is the time. Now is the time when the great gatherings of bluegrass musicians begin to take place. Yes, there are some winter festivals, but I consider a real bluegrass festival to be an outdoor event. I don't want to be doing bluegrass in a hotel. I mean, I will. That can be fun, too. I'm not bashing those midwinter bluegrass festivals and conventions and things. I'm just saying the real fun of a bluegrass festival to me is to go on a a full weekend, possibly even four days, bluegrass festival where you're camping and you're picking and you're watching the bands play, or maybe you're playing. That to me is what a bluegrass festival is all about. And now is the time to start thinking about going to a festival. Before you make plans, I think it's wise to decide why you want to go to a bluegrass festival. For me, my reasons for going might be different than yours. And that's okay because there are lots of different types of bluegrass festivals. If your desire is to go and soak it up and watch all the, the hot big name acts in the bluegrass world, that's a different kind of a festival than if your desire is to go and jam and pick 
the entire weekend nonstop, sometimes all night long, and maybe go down to the stage once in a while and check out some of the bands. That's a different kind of a festival. So I think you need to think about why you want to go, and I don't care which which type of festival you go to. Go to the one that you want to. But at least consider, if, if you go to Merlefest, if that's your plan, and you say, all right, I'm going to Merlefest this year, that is not the kind of festival that you're going to, you know, I don't think it would be wise to go to Merlefest and hope you're going to just jam and pick 24-7 the whole time. There is jamming and picking going on, but that is a more of a performance festival, no doubt about it. It's, to get the most out of a festival like that, you need to be in the audience, front row, watching all these people that you, you know, that you admire and you aspire to be like and all that. And those kind of festivals are great for that. I've been to Merlefest twice. Once in 1986, I believe it was, when Cedar Hill was booked to play the festival. And I think we did four, three or four sets. We did the main stage, we did the kids stage, and we did the side stage. I think there were only three stages in 86. That was fun. But there was very little jamming going on because it's there's it's not really a camping facility and people are scattered all over the place. We did some jamming at a motel somewhere nearby. Uh it's just not a jamming type festival. Not to say you won't have some jamming, you will. Uh the second time I went, I went as a just a ticket holder and I went and I was just part of the crowd being herded around and I really didn't have a good time. I camped in the backyard of a, a Masonic lodge that was within earshot. I could hear the stage from there. And, uh, they had opened their little yard, like a one acre lot up to tent campers. And I was camping there and I kept having to walk, you know, like way, you know, long ways back and forth and back and forth. And there was a guy in the tent next, you know, like camping next to me that kept wanting to pick and, he and I picked a little bit, but it was not a big picking festival. I spent most of my time at that festival just sitting in a lawn chair in front of my tent listening to the show, but I couldn't see it. Anyway, think about the kind of what, what you want out of the festival and then try to choose the festival that best suits that rather than, you know, hoping to, if you want to jam, you know, those big giant gargantuan festivals may not be the thing. You might be better to choose kind of a, a mid-sized, smaller festival. Okay, so think about what type of festival there there is. Next thing, pick one. How are you going to find one? Well, get on the internet, of course. After I just spent 17 minutes bad-mouthing all technology, get on the internet, I or if you're a subscriber to Bluegrass Unlimited magazine, I suspect they have, like they do every year, put out a festival directory. There are hundreds and hundreds of bluegrass festivals, and get online and find some to choose from. Then I suggest that you ask around with the people who've been at this longer than you. You know, what do you think of this festival? You know, have you ever been to Raccoon Creek? You ever been to Armucci? You ever been to Cochrane? 
You ever been down to Twin Oaks? You ever been to Swanee? You ever been to, you know, ask people. Don't spend all your time in a jam session playing Cripple Creek. You know, talk. Find out what's going on. Get the, get the skinny, get the lowdown on these festivals from people who have been there. So you got to, because you're trying to choose one, you can't go to every festival. So you need to make a selection of maybe one or two festivals that you're going to hit this spring and summer and then start planning to go. And I suggest that you find someone to go with. It could be somebody you know, you know, just a friend, a bluegrass picking friend. Pick somebody that, that likes bluegrass, I mean, you know. Sometimes you can talk somebody into going and they have no experience with bluegrass and, hey, that person's better than nothing. But sometimes that person is not going to have the best time. And that's going to drag you down. So try to find somebody that's hot on the idea just like you are. Go back and listen to A Partner in Crime. I think it's episode nine, maybe. Find yourself a partner in crime. If you cannot find a partner in crime, I would suggest you consider your spouse and children. And I, in my notes, I put little question marks after that because sometimes your spouse would rather you just went and left her at home. You know, sometimes she wants to go or he, I'm, I'm using she because my spouse is a she. And kids, you know, I, I love a festival where there's plenty of stuff for kids to do and they can run around and just get into trouble and they're not there to pick necessarily. Um, but if you turn them loose at, at a festival, I keep using Merle Fest as an example, but you know, this could be, I don't know, any one of the big festivals. Sometimes those aren't the kind of festivals you want to turn your, your kids loose at a little smaller festival, a little more homegrown type festival. It's probably better if you plan on bringing your kids. But in considering your spouse, ask yourself, does she play? Does she like bluegrass? If she doesn't, you know, you may spend a large portion of your time trying to keep her happy when you'd maybe rather just be there alone and just picking and, you know, being completely useless. So maybe you can trade off like a, a spa weekend or, you know, uh, uh, I don't know what, like girls weekend out type thing with you being able to go and do this. Now, maybe you're single and you don't have those issues to deal with. All I'm saying is a spouse that is into it is the greatest thing ever. A spouse that is not into it is like a boat anchor to both of you. It's not just you. She, if she's having a rotten time, you'll have a rotten time. You follow me? I, I may be preaching to the choir here. Just consider that. And if you s select the right kind of festival, a lot of times, even a sort of semi-disinterested, non-participatory spouse will still have a good time, especially if she likes the bands. I mean, I've, I've been to festivals where my wife is spent, you know, more time down at the stage area watching the bands than I did because she liked that. And she'd come back, Oh, you, you should have seen so-and-so like, well, I, you know, I've seen him before. 
I'm, I'd just rather sit down here and pick. Anyway, be very careful about that decision because whoever you take with you, you want everybody to have a good time. So sometimes it's better just to fly solo. Sometimes it's better just to get a couple of your picking buddies and go. And sometimes it's great to kind of forego your personal desires and try to have fun with the family, you know? Another possibility is that you're in a band and you try to convince the whole band to go. And of course, one of the greatest ways to do that is to get booked at a festival. And you might think, well, we're not good enough. No, there's a festival out there that you are good enough to get booked at. So don't just write that off. Consider that that is a lot of fun to go as a band. And sometimes you can't get the whole band to go if you're not booked, you know, because if there's no dollar bills available, <laughs> you know, some guys are just not going to do it. So sometimes, you know, two or three members of a band might just get together and say, hey, we're going to Cochrane. And if, if the rest of y'all can come, fine. If you can't, fine. We're going. Because you know these people, you know, and they're your picking pals. But anyway, decide who's going. Then once you've chosen one or two festivals and you've talked about it with all these different people, get the tickets, get the directions, put it on that calendar and commit to going. Now the date is approaching. It's coming. Uh, and you begin to look forward to this. You can't wait. I can't, I can't wait two weeks until that festival comes because it's a lot of fun. I mean, this is like a pilgrimage. I mean, you're going to be surrounded by people who like bluegrass, unlike your normal day-to-day -day life where most people don't even know what it is. You know, there's a few people that do, but it's a pretty isolated world to be a bluegrass picker. But when you go to a festival, it's not like that. All of a sudden, practically everybody you've talked to or run into, they're into it just like you. And it is rejuvenating and it, it gets you excited about playing. And you realize that you're not alone out there in the world. And it's done in such a way that the internet cannot do. I don't care how many Facebook groups there are and forums and all this stuff. It is not the same as sitting in a lawn chair next to somebody in front of their motorhome while he's telling you the story of when they went to such and such. And, you know, it is not the same. Get out there and do it real world. Okay. Now, if you've never been to a bluegrass festival, and I'm talking about the typical, let's, let's say you choose to go to a mid-size bluegrass festival where they have one or two sort of national acts on each day. Like maybe they have a couple of national acts on Friday and a couple on Saturday. And the tendency is to be a Friday, Saturday it used to be always a Saturday, Sunday. And of course the bigger festivals might begin on Tuesday and go all the way through Sunday. But let's just say you're, you're doing one of these little regional bluegrass festivals. There'll be one or two acts that are, that are, known entities and then there'll be a lot of the local bands regional and local bands will be filling out the schedule those are great festivals because they're they're generally real heavy into jamming at those kind of festivals and usually it's camping on site doesn't matter if you're in a tent or a car or an rv 
those those smaller festivals are in my experience always a lot more fun if you're going to jam if you're going to see the big names and all that kind of stuff go to the big festivals you'll see a bunch of them anyway to prepare for this sort of thing if you've never done this i suggest that you begin camping because a bluegrass festival really is a camp out you know it's a weekend camping trip except instead of fishing or canoeing or playing golf or throwing the frisbee you pick that's the only real difference and there is probably a stage with bands performing so if you're unfamiliar with camping I would suggest before you go to a festival that you start thinking about camping go camping at the old state park nearby get yourself a tent start learning you know what you got to do when you're not at home and you don't have the bathtub and the refrigerator you know now a lot of you probably are expert campers maybe you've been camping since you were in the boy scouts and done a lot of family camping and all that kind of stuff bluegrass festival is going to be a walk in the park if you're an experienced camper and and a lot of times when you get to a festival you will find that it's not full-blown camping because most festivals offer food and drink available on site there'll be vendors so you can actually get away at a bluegrass festival and not carry food and not cook you need to check that out in advance make sure you know a lot of times on the flyer it'll say you know we've got a we got a little restaurant where we serve you know food the whole weekend so you can just you know purchase those things but sometimes that's it's certainly not the most economical way to do it but consider that and be certain of what's available also you know we're not talking about like a backpack a trip on the Appalachian Trail where you know you need to <laughs> carry everything with you I mean most of these bluegrass festivals are gonna have bathrooms they're gonna have many times bath houses you know showers available concessions vendors you know which won't be available like if you just go off in the woods and camp so you don't have to prepare for everything but having a little experience with you know setting up your tent and you know campfires and making sure your lantern works and things like that it's a lot easier to test drive all that stuff just go into a local state park or something and do some family camping you know and you'll build up your skills which will be useful to you in the bluegrass festival world um, so it, remember that you need to think about food and drink and you need to be prepared to share because when you go camping at a state park or something and you're in your little site you might not even talk to the people like three three sites down from you you know they're down there and you won't find a reason to go over there and hang around their campsite you might talk to the people you know you just bump into but it's not a very gregarious bunch a lot of times people are very private even though they're all camping together at a say a state park or KOA or something like that bluegrass festivals are not like that bluegrass festivals everybody's tromping through everybody's campsite they're all getting together and constantly in motion and you know a lot of times you'll spend the majority of a weekend hanging around somebody else's camper you know 
because you're picking together. So be prepared to share when it comes to food and drink. So plan a little extra in that department. Everybody shares. This doesn't happen, you know, family camping at state parks and stuff. A little bit of it does, you know. But it's share and share alike. The last thing you want to do is go to a bluegrass festival and you've very carefully planned your menu for you and your friend and you're going to cook steaks and you you fire up the grill and you put those two T-bone steaks on there and pretty soon there's like 10 people standing around, hungry eyes looking at you and you sit down to eat your steak and your salad and stuff. Ah, oh, come on. You should have brought like a dozen steaks and just thrown them on there. You know, make some friends by doling out the food. There was a guy who used to uh, always have a huge crowd around his RV early in the morning because he would, every morning at the festival, the thing he always did was made a humongous pot of coffee. And a lot of people just don't come prepared, you know. They don't have the coffee. I didn't think about it or whatever. And the smell of that coffee would drift through the campsite. And pretty soon there'd just be people drifting in and out, you know, drinking that coffee. He also made some pretty mean Bloody Marys with this celery stalk right in it. And that was his thing. He came prepared to share. And, you know, he made very close friends with a lot of people because of his attitude of sharing. So be prepared to share, but don't expect that other people are going to share with you. You'll be prepared. Don't just think you're going to wander around and find plenty to eat and drink. You know, don't expect other people to do for you. I think you get the idea. Next thing, sleeping gear. I've gone to festivals and I've, I've slept in the car. I've slept in the back of the truck on a mattress. I've slept in a tent pop-up campers. I have slept space in someone else's motorhome pre, pre, you know, pre planned like, Oh, you know, Joe's bringing his motorhome. Hey, w would it be possible that on Friday night, I just, you know, spend the night in an RV? Oh yeah, no problem. But don't, you know, set that kind of stuff up in advance. Don't just go and think, well, he's all by himself in that big old RV. Maybe I can just spend the night there. Talk to him beforehand. But you need sleeping arrangements, and therefore you also need sleeping gear. I've, I've spent the night at a bluegrass festival in a hammock. You know, that's great when the weather's great. I remember one time I went to a festival, and I did not, I wasn't planning on staying the night. I just kind of made a quick run up to Dahlonega when it was at the old Blackburn Park, and I rode around a campground, and I found Buddy Ashmore and his bunch there. And I was not planning on spending the night. But by 2 in the morning, I realized I was spending the night. So at 2 in the morning, I had planned to go home at, you know, 10. And here I am, 2 in the morning, I might as well spend the night. And the best I could come up with was there was a hammock. Somebody else's hammock not being used, and I spent the night in that hammock. And I didn't even have a sleeping bag with me except um, my daughter's Barney sleeping bag. And so it was in the trunk of the car. And so I slept that night in a hammock with the Barney sleeping bag. I got up the next morning. I knew I should have already been home because we had a gig the next day. Hop in the car, drove back to Atlanta from Dahlonega. And that evening, 
when Buddy got home, he, he called me up and he left a message on my machine. I had to run out and play a gig that day. And when I got home, I was checking the answering machine and there's Buddy Ashmore, who's campground. I had just, I left before they even got up. He's like, when you get a chance, come by the house. Cause I got your Barney sleeping bag here. Anyway, that was poor planning. So do a little better planning. I can say, um, without a doubt that when I go camping, I take at least one cot. If my wife is going, she does not like to sleep on the ground. So I have a cot for her. I can, I can handle the ground or an air mattress, but she likes a cot. So get your sleeping gear figured out, get your clothing figured out, rain gear, an umbrella can make you a hero. If, if you start getting showers, rain gear, ponchos, all that kind of stuff, furniture, what are you going to? What are you going to sit in? The The usual thing at many of these festivals is the lawn chair. You know, you take your chair down and you park it in front of the stage and that's your chair. And sort of, there's sort of this um, um, law of the bluegrass festival that you can put your chair down there and that's your chair whenever you're there. But when you're not there, somebody else can sit in it. So you, you can't just say, hey, that's my chair. You can't sit in it. But if you come along, then whoever's in your chair should get up and let you have your chair. But chairs just become, you know, everybody's using everybody's chairs is what it boils down to. But bring some folding chairs. A lot of times the flyer or the website will tell you that. Otherwise, you're going to be sitting on the ground and you're not going to be able to see as well. Not all festivals do that. So, you know, ask somebody who's been to that festival. But couple of lawn chairs, folding chairs is an absolute must at a festival. You know, coolers, food stoves, lanterns, you know, all that stuff. You need to think about all this. Lighting, you know, and test run this stuff by just go camping, you know. Better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. That is my philosophy. You know, and then you got to think about this is a bluegrass festival. What about all the picking stuff? Well, you need to bring your instrument or instruments. And that brings up an important point. I've gone to festivals where I was just a ticket buying. Um, I wasn't camping, so I didn't have the shady campground. I was forced to park out in a, in a field and that hot summer sun beating down on my car. And I didn't want to leave my mandolin in that car. So you got to think about temperature. Generally speaking, if you're camping, you can set up a tent, set up, you know, your van, your, your RV, whatever. And you can provide some shade so that your instrument doesn't cook and fall apart. But I've gone to festivals where I just carried my instrument around because I could protect it better than leaving it in the car. You got to think about temperature. You got to think about security. Instruments do get swiped and it, I, I can't give you much advice there except just be a little careful and keep your eyeballs on your instrument or take an instrument that you don't care about, you know, and maybe you, maybe you've been wanting to upgrade your guitar. So just take that guitar and leave it in the worst possible place and with any luck maybe it will get stolen and then you'll be forced to go buy that martin d28 you've been longing for 
it's just considerations, you know. Don't take your lower mantle and, and leave it in the trunk of a car out in the middle of the hot sun for hours and hours and hours, or you're just asking for it. So you got to be a little careful with your instrument. Also, don't forget all those supplies that you need. Spare strings, picks, tuner, definitely a strap, because you're going to be standing most of the time you're picking. Capos, little tools that you might need. All that stuff, don't forget it, because that may not be available easily at a festival. I mean, yeah, if, if, if there's 50 banjo players around, you break a string, you'll come up with a string. And sometimes there are vendors there selling all this stuff. In fact, it's a great place many times to buy some of the things because your local music store may not have diddly when it comes to bluegrass accessories. But this guy who comes around to all these festivals and sets up his table, he's got records, he's got capos and Scruggs tuners and just all kind of stuff. A lot of times it's wise to bring a little extra cash because sometimes at those vendors you'll find those picks, those thumb picks that you like that you can't find and he's got a bunch of them. So that brings me to money. I suggest for bluegrass festivaling you think in terms of cash because these vendors and stuff are not going to be accepting plastic debit cards and checks and stuff like that. These festivals, you might be able to buy your ticket, certainly online you can buy your ticket that way, and at the gate many of them probably do, and the larger the festival probably the more high-tech money changing goes on. But there's no substitute for cash, so think about the cash requirements you need, and whatever you think you need, double it. Better to have a $100 bill folded up, tucked in your wallet, that you didn't use, than to be browsing around, you know, on Saturday during the middle of the day and, and see this thing. Oh, man, this guy is selling a set of Waverly mandolin tuners for a 100 bucks. I mean, it's crazy. I need to buy those. So having a little extra cash on, on hand is the way. I think in terms of cash, as the old saying goes, don't keep all your eggs in one basket. You know, what if you lost your wallet? You know, maybe stash a little in the car and a little in your boot and some in your mailing case. But have a little extra cash. Plan on a cash economy at a bluegrass festival. And also, the last thing I would say about festivals is, you know, expectations. You may have it all in your mind. You think you know exactly how it's going to be. And then when you get there, things turn out to be a little bit different. Just roll with it and enjoy it. And you can... Things aren't always going to go exactly your way, you know. Sometimes you think it's great, and then, holy cow, that outhouse is not what I'd call a bathhouse, you know. Just chalk that up and say, well, remember, when we go to that festival, you know, it's not the greatest facilities. You know, just don't expect it all to be perfection. This is bluegrass, and the people who are putting on these festivals Trust me, they're not making any money. <laughs> Starting a bluegrass festival is the quickest way to lose money. I should interview my friend Charlie. He he is, uh, like I have, done a couple of festivals. Actually, he did about six or seven years running, did a festival. And I, I he has stopped doing it. I guess he got tired of throwing that money down that hole, you know. 
Anyway, it's not the way to make money. So be uh, be appreciative of the of the festival promoters who are willing to go out on a limb to create this kind of thing for you. That's enough about festivals other than to say, go. There's nothing like it. I've said it several times, and I'll continue to say, you can't do bluegrass sitting around in front of a computer, sitting on the couch watching TV. Get out there. Go to some bluegrass festivals, and don't forget to visit the merchandise tables of the bands who are playing there. Sometimes, Sometimes that... Well, first of all, it's a great way to interact with those people. They're going to be hanging around the record table. Go over there and talk to them. You know, it's just an experience you can't get in many music styles and genres. So enjoy it. They're real people. And, you know, they need the cash. So go over there and buy something. Help that band out. Otherwise, if it's not profitable, it will go away. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the episode. And I apologize for my my rant on technology and I still don't have all this solved. So uh, now would be a good time to mention if anybody would like to uh, support the show, go to grasstalkradio.com and uh, became, become a grass talk radio supporter. And of course, don't forget bradleylair.com, the home of free lessons and all of my digital download products. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the show. I'll talk to you in the next podcast.